Welcome to the Avenue Community Church's podcast. We are a family of Christ followers seeking shalom in Memphis. We pray that you are encouraged by today's message. And as you listen, may the word of God shape you to be more like him. Been out that thing two weeks, some rusty, but I'm back. I'm glad to be back. It's good to be with, with you sweet people. Um, if you don't know, my name is uh, Tim Johnson, lead pastor here at the Ave. Um, and... Uh, uh, excited to serve here. Excited to be with you. Um, if you are in the audience, Trey, I'm sure, you know, our friends got got there and then they looked at what we were preaching and they realized they had invited friends or family and um, we might probably need to play something soothing for them. I'm not sure. But uh, if you're nervous uh, because of the sermon text today, it's okay. We're going to get through it together. Um, don't, don't, don't leave yet. Um, there's hope. <laughs> um, no, actually, if you go look on our website, this is our mission statement to just eradicate all the sinners and all, I'm sorry, I'm just playing. I'll just play. Uh, uh, <laughs> but if you are here with us, um, we, we, this is, this is God's holy word. As a matter of fact, every Sunday for the past five years, when the word is read and goes forth, when we don't pick the scriptures that go forth, we always end it with a common refrain, right? That this is the word of the Lord, and we're not begrudging about it. We're not ashamed of what the scripture was that is uh, read over us this morning. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Y'all see why we preach expositionally through the Bible? So we're not just thankful for the passages like be anxious for nothing. Cast your cares on him. He'll keep you in perfect peace. We're thankful for all of it. Whether it's the ones that are really smooth going down or it's the ones that make you say ouch. You know, I was in Philly uh, this week and the pastor said, if you can't say amen, you can say ouch. <laughs> amen. <laughs> and so maybe even the ones that say ouch, we're thankful for amen. Amen, somebody. So, uh, we are in Romans. We didn't pick this one just because it's Halloween week and we wanted to scare you to Jesus. We didn't do it that way, you know what I'm We didn't do it that way. Uh, but we have been preaching through Romans. When you come back next week, we'll still be preaching through Romans. And if you're new here, maybe that might, you, you know, you, that might be new to you. Um, but uh, what we think it does for you is that over the course of time, it, it builds a more comprehensive knowledge of Scripture. And you see how your Bible starts to, what, what my mentor used to say, my Bible gets smaller as I mine it deeper and I know a little bit more about it. And you'll see how interconnected the book of Romans is as is telling the whole story of Scripture. So I invite you to come back and rock with us uh, throughout the rest of this journey. This part, Romans 1 through 6, we get through the salutations and the greetings, and Paul is like, hey, this is who I am. I'm a slave of this message about a king and the regime change, and I'm here um, to propagate that message and to share it with all of it because it's not just good news to a certain group of people. It's good news to everybody, right? Um, to the Jew, to the Greek, to the barba barbarian, the slave, the free. This is good news for everyone, right? Because inside of this message, the righteousness of God is revealed. And those who believe it will live by faith to faith, right? And so what we get, those are the first 17 verses, the happy verses. Everybody say the happy verses. 
Those are the ones you put on the coffee cup, Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. <laughs> and then you just hear, you hear DJ Jazzy Jeff with the, you know, you get the big screech in the strong switch because all of a sudden, the next 14 verses really link the wrath of God with the righteousness of God. That you cannot understand the righteousness of God. His justice, his ability to exonerate those and bring them into his family, you can't understand it unless you understand his wrath. That actually his wrath reveals or demonstrates and is interconnected with his righteousness. And so, what we learned in those first verses, especially um, ooh, verses 18 through 24, is that humans experience his, their, God's wrath as a result of their willful suppression of truth. Everybody say, truth suppression. Kind of sound like cough suppressant, but I'm not saying cough suppressant. I'm saying truth suppression, right? Um, so, what has happened, we learn in verses 18 through 24, is that God is holding men unto account. How are you holding them to account? They don't know who Jesus is. Ah, they might not know who Jesus of Nazareth is, and they might not know that he was born of David into a royal lineage. They might not have ever heard Messiah before, but every time they go to uh, the mountains and they look out and uh, uh, the Purdoms is here. Where the Purdoms at? Man, come on. Look at my brothers. Every time you go out to Colorado and you see that picturesque landscape, you know you didn't make it. And every time you take a trip down to the Gulf Coast and you get some of them big jumbo shrimp and you get out there with all them white folks who be burning on the beach. And you look out into that vast ocean out there and you see ripple after ripple. You know you're not causing it. And every time you stare up in the sky and you look at the constellations, you know that there is not a man from any generation that had anything to do with any of it. God says that I've made myself clear to every person who's ever drawn breath. They know something inherent about me and my bigness, and I will hold them to account. So what those human beings do after they know these things, they experience these things, and they suppress that truth, then God holds them to account. And not only does he hold them to account, what we learned in those first four verses of 18 to 24 or whatever is that essentially um, that when you suppress the truth, you become dumber. I'm sorry. That's what it says, actually. Verse 21 that their foolish hearts become darkened, that essentially when you suppress the truth, something happens to your reasoning. And you start, as they would say in verse 25, you exchange the immortal glory of the great big unknown God for things that you know have been created. Y'all remember that scripture we read out of Isaiah? Where literally, my boy said, the picture is of somebody literally carving their God. They making their God making its nose, putting a hole in there, giving it some earrings. And then they said, oh, man, we got to pause a little bit. I'm cold, so I got to cut your leg off, God, so I can have some food for, some, some wood for the fire. It says that essentially true suppression makes you numb to how irrational that is. Why would you worship and put faith in something you made yourself? But that 
is showing you the severity and the consequences of what happens when human beings suppress the truth of what is clearly visible to them through the whole created order. It deteriorates. And so, really, these next couple of verses, they just kind of pull us deeper and deeper into the consequences of true suppression. So we'll look first at the big thing, the consequence, the big consequence of true suppression, the consequence of depravity, and we'll look at why those consequences are just. So when we look clearly at the big idea in these next 14 verses, the big consequence of true suppression, the consequences of depravity, and we're going to look at why those consequences are just. There's going to be, in those 14 verses, three times God's going to use one phrase, God gave them over. So anytime you get 14 verses and it's used three, three times, I think it's important. What you say, Pastor? I think it might be important, right? right. God, everybody say, God gave them over. God gave them over. Now listen, this is loaded, and uh, I was like, you know, there's no way I can do it all in one week, and y'all get out of here before Trunk or Treat, because I want y'all to come back for Trunk or Treat, eat some candy or whatever. Um, so uh, verse 24, God gave them over essentially to sexual immorality. Verse 26, God gave them over to unnatural desires, if I'm not mistaken, or shameful lust. We're going to pause. I'm going to do a whole Sunday next week on our complicated relationship with sex. Okay? I just, I'm going to punt on those, and we're just going to skip, and we're going to do, really, we're going to zoom in on, I think, 28 through 32, but next week, we'll just do a whole week on our complicated relationship with sex, all right? But we see three times, he says, God gave them over to sexual impurity in 24, 26, God gave them over to shameful lust in 26, and um, God will essentially, in verses uh, ooh, uh, uh, 28, God gave them over to a depraved mind, and that's where we'll focus today, all right? When, when, when the Scripture says God gave them over, uh, the first thing I need you to understand is that this does not at all mean that God gives up on humanity, okay? Uh, I don't have my papyri with me. I don't have my Bible. I got my tablet today. Gil, hold up your word. Hold it up, Gil. Hold up your word. You got, you got Loads, 1,600 years, 40 different authors, 69 books of evidence that would refute any notion that God ever gives up on humanity. Okay, that ain't what it's saying, okay? You need to know that. We are all sitting in this room because God, don't give up on God. What you say, y'all? Because he, okay, so we know. We know when, when the Scripture is using this phrase, God, give them over. That's not essentially what he's saying, okay? The giving over here is letting you have the natural consequences of your desires, okay? We see this in Judges. This, this, is, this is kind of, we see this Genesis 6 after the fall, this idea of, hey, man, things run amok. God lets you have the natural end or consequence of what you are choosing. It's okay. If that's what you want, I'm not going to stop you. This is what means when God gives someone over. What you need to know, this is kind of like the image of the prodigal son. When the son comes in and says, hey, I want my inheritance. I want to live like I want to live now. The loving father says, 
Maybe the best thing I could do for you right now is let you have what you want. Daddy didn't stop at the door. He didn't say, you better get back in here because you know our house values. He said, here, son, you may go. God will not force himself on anyone. Now, we do believe that essentially the testimony of salvation, the, the, how we break it apart, is that essentially God has to heal our will. That essentially we would always choose the wrong way, but he has to heal us from the inside, fix our vision so we can actually see, oh, wow, that letter says A. And now I'm going to stop calling A-Z, right? You know, he has to fix your lens. And that's how we know that you have truly been regenerated, not because you're forced to serve Jesus. You want to serve Jesus. He can't force himself on you. It doesn't work that way. This is what it means when God gives you over. Here's the definition that you may want to take a picture of or just whatever. So the God giving over, it's the response of God to humans whereby he surrenders them to the effects of their primary sin of refusing to acknowledge him as their creator. This is, this is the primary sin we're talking about. It's the refusal to admit he's God, you're not. He's right, I'm not. He made it all, I didn't. He's worthy of all my praise and my life. This is when God gives you over. He says, you've chosen that I'm not who to refute the testimony of the created order and scripture, so I'm going to give you over to whatever you would put in my place. Worship it and receive the consequences thereof. So the response to humans' refusal to rightly respond to God's revealing himself is God giving them over to not just the consequences but also base conduct. Irrational, depraved conduct. Tillman says this, the response to God's revelation of himself as creator has been dishonorable and irrational. And its result is the dishonorable, irrational behavior that Paul is going to lay out in verses 28 through 32. 28 just says, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. Everybody say depraved mind. So that they do what ought not to be done. It's so crazy, man, that so many of us, even the testimony in all the world, everybody wants to know the divine. Everybody wants to know the Holy One. But these people, as described in this passage, they deemed it worthy or not worthwhile to get to know that God. It wasn't worth their approval, right? One commentator said the human mind was supposed to glorify and thank God, to reverence and serve God. And when it did so, it made reasonable and good decisions about how to live. So remember I told you, if you suppress the truth, it is deteriorating your reasoning senses. But as you put the creator and the created thing in its proper order, right, it enables you to make sober-minded, reasonable, good, healthy decisions about the world and how you interact with your neighbors. A fractured society is the only legitimate natural end of minds who have the chain of command in the wrong order. It all deteriorates. It all falls apart when you have the head not in its proper place. 
So all of these horrors that we're about to read about in verses 28 through 32 happen when God gives you over to what you think you want to be the king of your world. Let's talk about depravity. So depravity for us, some of y'all know that, right? Um, <laughs> how many of y'all know that we're Presbyterian? <laughs> that was not a trick question. Do you know that this church is Presbyterian? Okay, raise your hand. I just want to see my show of hands, right? If you didn't know that this church is Presbyterian, I apologize. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Don't tell my bosses, please. One of the things that um, we do, we, we sit through, and I hope um, really, just another cameo, um, Josh, Joanna, and George doing a great job helping us with some foundational theology um, that, how many weeks y'all got left? Two more weeks. I just encourage you, man, jump in there and just understand some about the core theological convictions that we have as Presbyterians. Um, a lot of times there's this term called Reformed theology, which also kind of um, most of the time categorizes the things that we hold true and valuable. Um, and if you've, you've heard about Reformed theology, how many of y'all heard about Reformed or whatever, or Calvinist, you've heard those words. Some of y'all are, are we Calvinists? about that. One of the things that maybe you've heard of this term called TULIP, the first part of TULIP, is total depravity, right? Now, the rest of those points are not important for today, but what you need to know is total depravity is a biblical idea. It's the idea that essentially um, uh, uh, that sinfulness is inherent to our human nature and that all people are inclined to sin. Um, with, with total depravity, sin has a, a complete hold on human behavior so that no one is able to be saved on their own accord, okay? This is important for your theology, right? You can never make up for the gap that you have between you and God. There's a chasm that it doesn't matter how hard you try it. You could never read your Bible enough. You could never come to church enough. Those are just outward displays. Let me, let me get into your heart. You could never not go to or live one single year without thinking about somebody the opposite sex that ain't your wife in a way that you shouldn't. Hmm, you couldn't go probably one week, maybe some of y'all, without looking at somebody of your same sex in a way that doesn't line up with Scripture. Something's wrong with us is what total depravity is saying. Total depravity. Now, we would differentiate between the terms total and radical. Everybody say total. Total is the idea um, that's synonymous with utter depravity. And it would kind of give you the notion that human beings are completely corrupt and every human being is as bad as they could ever be. We don't believe that. Okay? When we say depravity, we don't subscribe to total depravity. Don't y'all know? Every time there's some kind of mass anything, I always, after I grieve and I am sad, you know, knowing them just had, uh, the White Station family had a tragedy at, at their school this past week. And man, after I grieve and I, and I pray for the families, I always end up thanking God because God still in his sovereignty constrains evil. It's never as bad as it could be. 
worth praising him for the whole rest of the year? Literally, what stops human beings from just running a total muck and doing everything that they want to do? Nothing but the sovereign grace of our God. We don't believe in utter depravity and total depravity. We believe in radical depravity. Radical depravity finds its, its origin, the word, that word radical is tied to root. That something in the core is actually wrong. That if, if, if PT, if I had a cup up here and I had a pitcher of water and I poured just eight cups of water, you know, but I put, I put one little chemical in there, you know, and it just wouldn't matter how many cups of water I've poured, they've, they've all been polluted by a foreign substance, right? It's all in there. Our well from which we live life always has a little bit of brokenness in it, right? Every time I stand before you, I'll be honest with you, I'm not just standing here preaching the Word of God with a clear conscience. I got things going on in my brain. I'm mad at some people. You know, Jonathan Edwards, there's a little bit of depravity in everything we do. I love my wife selfishly. I love you, baby. I just want to love you, but I also want... There's a little bit of depravity in everything that we do. All of us are all still suffering from the same original sin of self-protection, self-justification. And at the end of the day, even the people close to us, we will steal from them to protect ourselves. It's bad. Can I get a witness, somebody? It's not that everything we do is bad. But everything we do is still kind of soiled with sin. Me and Lee were flying back, and um, a sweet baby had to do what it had to do. And I was like, oh, Lee, you need to say excuse me. And then I realized it wasn't Lee. I was like, oh, Lord, what do they do with stinky diapers on airplanes? Do we just have to sit the whole flight like this? Somebody soiled that diaper. Some of us, all of us, we still have the stench of sin in our lives. That's radical depravity, and that's true. Now, what I want to tell you is not to get these concepts confused. We believe that even our best intentions still have a little taint of sin. That's radical depravity. But what Romans 1 introduces us to is a new idea that essentially God gives you over to a state of a depraved mind. We are born into sin because of Adam and Eve's fall. But because of truth suppression, one of the consequences of suppressing what we know to be true, God will give you over to a depraved state of being. What you mean, pastor? A depraved mind, what is it? That word in the Greek just means debased of no use, formally failing the test. It's unfit. It's unproven. Essentially, a depraved mind or living in a depraved state is a mind that is of no use to the glorification of God and the harmony that he wants to provide and bring to his created order. One commentator says that a depraved mind is one that 
is of no use and it produces all types of wicked behavior. All of them examples of the breaking of the law of God. The responsibility to love God and to others. Verse 29 says, they have been filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. Here's the list. When you have a depraved mind, you're not just born into iniquity. You're not just born with an inclination to sin. You're not just born with, with, with sin that soils all your good stuff. When you choose true suppression, you start producing these things. Your depraved mind starts producing uh, uh, Verse 29, every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. That word full of in the Greek is present tense, and it's giving you the idea that this, this wicked behavior has reached this kind of climactic point that defines humanity. Truth suppression. When you deny the truth of who God is, you get things out of order. Your reasoning starts to deteriorate. You produce acts that destroy society. That's what this is saying. Where did it start? Where did racism start? Because I'm just white and every person who just white just going to be white? No, it's somewhere you are suppressing truth and it's deteriorating your senses and it just makes you more of a blatant racist and sinner. Where does greed start? It's just because that family's just greedy? No, it's because somewhere there's been some true suppression and it's deteriorating your ability to reason and you just become more of what you have your attention on. Do you see the narrative that the scripture is telling you? Oh, blessed Father. Come on, Tez. Come on, Wes. Come on, Mel. Come on, Jefferson. Come on up real quick. Come on, JJ. Come on up. I just want y'all to form a big kumbaya circle. Get on up here on this stage. Look at these handsome fellas over here. Some of y'all, I'd marry some of them. Some of them stay away from them. They, they take it. All right. Hold, hold. I want y'all to hold hands like y'all, you know, yeah, yeah, hold hands. That's good. That's good. I was in class the other day, and uh, our seminary professor and sending pastor, George Robertson, was trying to help us understand a, a worldview of, an, 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 of pre-enlightenment worldview. Spread out a little bit about as best you can spread out. All right. He says, essentially, that you want to think about your worldview like a big circle. And then what happens is, all right, unless loose each other's hands. Loose each other's hands. Whoop, whoop. You can lose them now. That there are gaps. So you have a worldview. You have a natural order. Things have, they, they, you know, they make sense. You know, photosynthesis, this happens, that happens, whatever. But then all of a sudden that there are gaps in this worldview, things happen that you cannot quite explain. And so it has been all of human nature uh, for the most part that, man, if there's some kind of tsunami or there's some kind of big uh, torrential rain pour that, you know, pre-enlightenment, we would fill this gap with God. 
If something happened that was inexplicable or unexplainable, we would fill this gap naturally with God. What happened on the other side of enlightenment, we get a little smarter. We, we understand a couple more things. It's like, oh, we understand why the rain happened or why we experienced that tsunami because this kind of system and that kind of thing and this kind of move. And so what happens is you don't fill this gap with God anymore. We fill that with science or sociology or behavioral system and patterns or whatever the case may be or self what I'm trying to help you understand is that everybody in this room has a little bit of truth suppression in all of us. We can't look and read them scriptures with arrogance like, oh, I can't believe those people. They did all those things. That inside of all of us, we want to try to understand our world with anything else but God filling the gap. You can be seated. Look at these fellas. They burly too. I can hardly get up there. Why are you saying that, PT? It's because look at the narrative that Scripture is trying to tell you. It is telling you that everything broken in your society is a result that somebody is refusing to acknowledge me and put me in their proper place. Now, let's go back to the beginning of where we started. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, go up in your, uh, your kid's soccer team and tell them that. Christian, you believe some countercultural things about your world. You do. This is not what they teach you in school. And yes, we may learn because of God's common grace. We may learn different things about behavioral sciences and anthropology and sociology. And to God be the glory for that. Because if it's true, it's true. Because the one who is true made it so. So that we can see it and discern it. But the ultimate narrative of our lives is that God who has revealed himself not just in Scripture but to the whole created order, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And if you choose him, you can have life and life to the abundance. But if you choose to suppress the truth, it not only destroys your life, but it throws society into chaos. That's what the Bible's telling you. So a couple things that we learn, just a couple straightforward things that we learn through these 32 verses. We're not all starting at zero. Depravity doesn't mean that we have no sense of who God is. Does that make sense? So it's like this should give you confidence as you are ministering and evangelizing your friends. It's like, oh, my God, they don't even have a concept for No, that's not true. Is it true? No. They see the sun, they see the moon, they see the stars, they, they see anatomy, and they see skin come back over things that have been broken. They know something's up out there, y'all. They're curious. They might be suppressing their curiosity, but they have something in their life that they can't explain and they can't explain away. They have some kind of base knowledge and understanding. We're not starting at zero. 
all human beings have some kind of knowledge of God. All human beings, like we just said, battle truth suppression. We're all trying to explain the gaps with something other than God. We're all trying to put something up there that shouldn't be there. All human beings know some basic requirements toward God and others. Where are you pulling that from, PT? Verse 32. It says, although they know God's righteous decree that those who deserve such things deserve death. So they already know. It's like they know God. They're suppressing the truth, and they know that God's righteous decree, those who, something in them just knows, hey, man, it's consequences for these things. They know that there's some basic requirement of how to, that, you know, you want to get some philosophers all twisted up in a knot, start talking to them about morality, and then go on for days trying to figure out, well, how do people just know that they shouldn't do this or shouldn't do that? Because they all know, we all agree, something in there is just kind of teaching us that, man, we shouldn't be lying, stealing, and hitting people. Where does it come from? It comes from the law of God. And all human beings know that disobedience deserves consequences. You know, it's funny, raising children... As I'm looking at mine, you know, even yesterday, I come back, and they, you know, everybody's so excited, they just start, my kids just start talking, and uh, Proverbs says that where there's a multitude of words, sin abounds. <laughs> and so, you know, they, they love mommy and daddy hugging and kissing, and they love to talk about us, and so they kind of know. Like, that's been the running joke. Oh, God, when mommy and daddy get together, oh. And I say, I love my boo. I don't care which one of y'all joking. You can stand right there and watch me kiss my girl. Okay, then. Stand right there. So they love to have fun talking about mommy and daddy. Well, you know, some one of my children got a little loose with the lips. And they said something. And before I even turned around, they were already apologizing. But I, I, I didn't mean, I didn't, and I didn't even say it. I didn't do it. I didn't mean it. Because you know. Because something in the human heart just knows. Yeah, maybe it's wrong for me to take what is yours like it was mine. Don't you be ashamed of that. I think we can appeal to that. Sometimes we're too mousy, like, well, maybe they don't know that's wrong. Brother, you know that if you have a whole zip code and you won't allow certain peoples to buy houses in that zip code, brother, you don't have to go to a university to know that's wrong, brother. That's wrong, man. You know if it costs you $10 and you charging me $50, brother, nothing, nothing, wait a minute. You're not contributing to human flourishing. And you know that. Don't tell me nothing about your profit margin. You know that somehow to, to fatten yourself, you are suffocating me. And you don't need anything or any summa cum laude to teach you that's wrong. But the worst part of all of this, verse 32 says, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, 
they not only continue to do these things, but also approve of those who practice them. Essentially, they're not only participating in evil by doing it, but they're assisting others. And the force of this passage is that approving evil is worse than doing it. It's like, man, it's one thing for you to do it, you know what I'm saying? But it's like, man, now you helping other people do it? So, as you look at verse 32, 17 through 32, the wrath of God being revealed against all unrighteousness. All these verses are trying to lay out to you is that God's response to evil is justified. It is just. It is not irrational. It's not impatient. It's not unmerciful. That it is actually justified that God is fair in how he deals with human beings and the consequences of them suppressing his truth. Now, especially you justice warriors in here, you know as you read the prophetic literature that the scripture paints this picture that it's not right, neither is it just in biblical terms for someone who is stronger to stand on the sidelines and watch while wicked people oppress the weak. That's from um, Tillman. He says it's not right. We know that nowhere in Scripture is it ever justified for you to stand and you have the ability to help and watch people suffer and you not do anything to intervene or to rectify the situation. So those of you who struggle with God's wrath, why do you not transfer that same character to him? It would be unjust for him to have created a world and to see it riddled with envy, gossip, slanderers, murders, sexual abusers, and not fix it. It's the only logical conclusion. The wrath just means that one day he's got to fix the world that ran amok. Some of y'all struggle with God's wrath, and it, but it's, it's the only response to a loving God. I want to read you a quote from a, this, a really amazing book by Miroslav Volf. It's called Free of Charge. This man has grown up or been reared or lived at one point in time in wartime Yugoslavia. And this is his reflections on God's wrath and justice. He would admittedly say that at some point he was more of a pacifist, nonviolent kind of person. But listen as he reflects on God's wrath. I put it on the screen for you. I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love. And God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I came. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. 
Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because he is love. God's wrath is the only logical conclusion to a world filled with godlessness. What you didn't need to know is that God's truth has been rephrased and reframed as the thing that's suppressing us. But it's actually God's truth that's liberating us. That the mere fact that we know God and we know the right order that he should fit in in life, it is the thing that's freeing us and contributing more and more to the world we want to live in. A world rightly ordered where we don't harm one another, where we don't take from one another, where we don't abuse one another. And the only way we can live in a way that truly breathes life into one another is to have our orientation set vertically. Where he is the one we worship and the one we pattern our lives after. And what if the most loving thing that could happen to any of us who choose to suppress God's truth is for him to just tell us we're wrong. Sometimes... You know, I know we believe in all the coddling and, hey, Johnny. Oh, it's okay. What if there's no time for that? What if your house is on fire and the exit you're getting ready to go out of is barred from the outside and the only thing we could do is just shout lovingly, you're going the wrong way. This is the implication of Scripture. This is the context of exhortation throughout Scripture. This is why we're not ashamed to exhort you. Turn from your sins. I don't care what you call the avenue. I don't care what you call me. Heaven's record will record. It was the most loving thing I could have ever done was sit here and scream like a fool that there's a God who loves you, who broke into humanity, who took on flesh to pay for your sins. You don't have to live that way no more. You don't have to choose those things anymore. Turn from your sins and repent and find times of refreshing. Nobody playing with you. I'm not loving you better by allowing you to sit in your cesspool of true suppression. I might be demonstrating that I hate you and I'm very indifferent to your life. 
Well, you know what, God, that's just them. Man, I'm so thankful for the few people who just willing to grab these big ears and say, brother, you are going the wrong way. And maybe some of us even loving our neighbors and loving our friends means that we will have to love them hard enough to let them go for a season in hopes that they may come back. But don't ever fool yourself. Think that you're loving someone and you're never willing to testify to the truth of what you proclaim. That's your best friend. They don't know your convictions. They don't know how often you pray for them and how much hot water you think their life in. That's your best friend. You fooling yourself. Your reasoning has become darkened. Testify to the truth that all of us were guilty. And but for the grace of God, the wrath of God would fall on all of us. But there's such good news today that as long as you draw breath, that you can about face and acknowledge that he is the truth. And he's standing there with willing and open arms to receive you back in. Would you pray with us?